Namaste and welcome to another edition of the Bharatvata Weekly. It's been a historic week for India. Plenty of good news. Of course, the big news is Chandrayaan 3's historic moon landing. And then we had the case of uh, Indian chess prodigy Pragnananda finishing second in the FIDE World Cup. Uh, a phenomenal achievement. And then we'll bring you a few updates uh, from across the world. Uh, the strange death of Wagner Group's uh, leader Yevgeny Prigozhin. We'll bring you updates from the BRICS summit and uh, the expansion. And of course, uh, Prime Minister Modi is in Greece. Uh, the first visit of its kind in 40 years. All of this and more on this weekly. Weekly is where we talk about the news and events of the week that was uh, along with Abhishek Paul and Nirav Kanodra to bring you sane perspectives and uh, dig deeper into what really the news means. Right? All right, uh, let's get on with it. Uh, on 23rd, ISRO's Vikram lander successfully achieved a soft landing on the South Pole of the Moon. With this, India joins the US, Russia and China to be among four countries to land on the moon and the first and only country to land on the south pole of the moon. In celebration, ISRO also released a video of the Pragyan rover coming out of the lander. Prime Minister Modi announced that Vikram lander's spot on the moon will be hence termed Shiv Shakti point and Chandrayaan 2's crash point has been named Tiranga. Well, Nirav, phenomenal, phenomenal achievement. Uh, we've all been waiting with bated breath uh, uh, on this eventuality and kudos to all the ISRO scientists and uh, everyone who made this uh, possible. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I think I mean, there's a good thing about, uh, if you remember Chandrayaan 2 in 2019, it, there was a hard landing and like it crash landed on the surface of the moon. And at that time, there were a lot of people upset. There were tears on screen. And uh, this is a good thing. The resilience is about like, even if it is not done on the first attempt, uh, we got there. And this is also interesting. Now, the key thing is, do we find uh, like water or ice caps on the South Pole uh, of the moon? Most other, like even when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon over 50 years ago, uh, that was around the equator, right? Uh, so like basically the poles would receive less sunlight and hence would be colder. And if at all we have a chance of humans living there, we would need water. So I think that's one thing. And uh, maybe there's a lot of, see, this whole mission, there's a lot of criticism from some people that why is India spending on space? So this whole thing cost about 615 crore rupees or 75 million US dollars, which is less than a Hollywood movie, Interstellar, or like any other Hollywood movies, right? Also, there is criticism. There are like a lot of people like Nigel Farage from the UK was saying that why should India be spending on this when they could spend on infrastructure. So the thing is on infrastructure, 75 million dollars is not enough. We need lakhs of crores for that. And India is a big country. Some people can send rockets to the moon. Some other people have to build infrastructure. And we've got like right from subsistence farmers or like landless laborers all the way to rocket scientists. We are a society. We have all types of people and all types of people should do well and reach their own potential. So I think this is perfectly great. This gives a huge boost to science and technology. This gives a huge boost for anybody considering that should they set up some India operations or should they set up some R&D operations in India. It's like massive branding. And another favorite stat, like if ISRO spent 615 crore rupees on like uh, spending on this, our stock market value Increase by 31,000 crores on a day just after that, right? Maybe it's other reasons, whatever reasons. There's a lot of positivity in there. It doesn't cost that much. It is not coming at the cost of anyone else. You cannot say that just this money was taken away from building a road or a bridge, etc., etc. I have my own pet peeves. I was joking with my parents. In Mumbai, there is one 
bridge which fell down and like uh, which is being reconstructed after 50 years so like five years they've been trying to rebuild it so in that much we went from chandrayaan 2 to chandrayaan 3 but that's a fact that is india every we've got all extremes a large country every extreme to occur and uh, uh, sadly there are some places where we are really world class some places we are not so world class but despite all of that i think this is just a single uh, event with like a massive positive externality everybody has taken up uh, and uh, seen this this single event viewing on youtube has been the single largest i think previous have been some soccer games but this is one single event with so much publicity all the credit has to be given to iso while the government and through governments as in through india's governments we've always been spending we've had some setbacks in between uh, and we've been stuck for a while but now again this whole thing has been rejuvenated and uh, this also enables india to be a space superpower where uh, we can launch satellites for other countries so in the us you have uh, jeff bezos and elon musk uh, trying to get private sector into the space but india could be one competitor as well help some of the smaller nations uh, launch satellites for their own uh, communications for their own like uh, agriculture and weather forecasting etc etc so this is very useful and uh, uh, yeah this this is just a single event which showcases india's power in like science and technology so just a great thing yeah so last week i was uh, you know watching what happened after chandrayaan 2 right i mean the isro director met uh, prime minister modi and who can forget those visuals uh, right of a uh, sobbing mr sivan um, you know being consoled by prime minister modi and then i was listening to uh, modi ji's speech as well uh, where he termed it so beautifully right i mean he said we tried to hug the moon a little too tightly and uh, his words of encouragement and everything were uh, at such a depressing time uh, for the scientists right i mean you know days and months of hard work uh, going down the drain and to come back from that right in about 4 years time is phenomenal i think it's a great great achievement space i think we've discussed this before right has a lot of impact downstream on you know technology applications that we use on an everyday basis right i mean you could find things in your microwave or washing machine that has uh, trickled down uh, from something to do with space right i mean uh, it's not uh, you know it's not for uh, just some wild exploratory itch that uh, you know us and uh, russia and the other more developed nations invest in space right i mean obviously they invest in space also for uh, material benefits and i've never quite understood the whole guns and butter argument that uh, you know people often make in these situations that you know money could uh, have rather been spent on infrastructure or food or health or whatever else uh, i don't think a nation's aspirations ought to be stalled just uh, to wait for 100% progress and prosperity for everyone i think uh, it goes hand in hand right and and stuff like this uh, as you rightly mentioned has such a positive spin off right i mean the stock market is one thing but you know look at all of the enthusiasm among the younger generation right if they become scientists and engineers uh, i'm sure you know 10 15 20 years from now a lot of folks will look back and you know call this one of those milestone moments so it's all in all a phenomenal achievement abhishek were you surprised with uh, some of the remarks uh, you know from our erstwhile colonial masters uh, you know uh, with the uh, racist undertones and what not uh, people keep talking about this foreign aid uh, for some reason well you know the foreign office itself has cla- has clarified that they don't give any financial aid to india uh, at this point right and uh, yeah i mean what do you make of those all of that has become very predictable now the all these things 
follow a set pattern where uh, any Indian achievement is going to be uh, a belittled by you know bringing up India's poverty and then it's also their own domestic agenda right like so if you see exactly what they were saying while they were taking sort of backhanded shots at India the basic target is their own government right that why are we sending aid these types of countries like India which like if you actually hear Faraj he said that India is a superpower in, in his statement like that these guys have nuclear weapons and rockets and all this so why are we sending aid so it's like a rhetorical thing of course there were many others who said many other things including bringing up Indian poverty and all that but basically it's one of those um, how do you say easily disprovable facts but something that their British right-wing media likes to bring about and I think there is also a bit of frustration in their ranks with an Indian at the head of the state in Britain which it's very hard for them to digest I think so you know if you see any comment section on YouTube or Twitter or anywhere basically they call Sunak as Rishi Sunak as an unelected PM right because in an election actually he would never get elected as the prime minister right the white British people would not do that actually so there is that frustration also on their right wing so yeah it's combination of reasons but it's actually like uh, you know we should just uh, sit back and enjoy them seething sometimes it's it's for our amusement (laughs) really i mean i think you know progress and prosperity is the only way to answer to any of these things so interestingly chandrayaan one's spot was named jawahar after of course uh, pandit nehru Alright, strange news coming in last week. Uh, on Thursday, the Russian Aviation Agency reported a plane crash en route from Moscow to St. Petersburg. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group and nine other people from his party have been reported to have died in the crash. Russia's President Vladimir Putin said in a statement that Prigozhin was a talented person who made serious mistakes in life. However, there is speculation as to whether this was orchestrated by Putin himself as a way to punish Prigozhin and if the mercenary leader is actually dead or not. I mean, this kind of reminded me of Dark Knight, the Batman movie. I mean, the first plane crash scene, right? I mean, with a bunch of uh, Russians or strange-speaking people. Yeah, I mean, fact and fantasy kind of merge, right, Abhishek? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we will never know what actually happened, right? Because the Russians basically said that they will conduct an investigation and I think Putin in his statement said that these investigations take time, etc. Right. So there will always be a lot of theories about what happened, right? Whether there were already pre-planted bombs on the plane or something else or whether it's a genuine crash, etc. So if it's a genuine crash, it's a hell of a coincidence, right? Given that this person was uh, allegedly on the verge of committing a coup or attempting one or a mutiny uh, in June, right? And after which uh, he marched on to the uh, nation's capital for a a day. And then initially, you know, Putin vowed to destroy this guy, right? And then somehow mysteriously a deal was sort of negotiated uh, by which 
he was supposed to move over to belarus right with some of his key people but it seems that in the subsequent periods he was still sort of moving along freely within russia so maybe who knows like he may not have been following the terms of the agreement or i don't know but yeah fascinating stuff in the whole russia ukraine situation as always maybe someone will make a hollywood blockbuster on this right in some very optimistic very positive news uh, chess prodigy r pragnananda finished second in the fide world cup after 3 days and 4 games of intensely nervy chess Uh, across two formats grandmaster magnus carlsen finally managed to win the fide world cup for the first time in his career this win however comes after the indian prodigy had dragged him through two tiebreaker matches you know nirav i was watching this interview of uh, pragnananda and he had said that you know he didn't expect playing magnus in the finals so maybe you know the next time and the time after that uh, you think that uh, he could actually beat magnus well, yeah so see so one is like pragnananda has done an awesome job and uh, on the way to the final uh, he beat world number 2 uh, fabiano caruana and world number 3 uh, hikaru nakamura he is only 18 right now hopefully we have a great future for him and if you see his few games his route to the finals because the fide world cup format or maybe this is uh, might be boring for non chess nerds but you play two classic games one each with black and white and a classic game each player gets 90 minutes and then there is some time uh, added for per move made after 90 minutes if you played 40 moves each by then then you get another 30 minutes so typically a game goes on over 4 hours 4 4 and a half hours so you have two games of those and if you are still drawn so either both won once or both were draw then next day you have rapid game which is 25 minutes each player gets if the two rapid games are still draw then you have blitz game which are 10 minutes each so in the quarter final pragnananda was play, uh, playing arjun eri gaisi uh, who is another indian chess prodigy and for them they had to play two classic two rapid four blitz and then after that there was a sudden death game in which uh, pragnananda won and moved ahead so he had a more tiring route and all these uh, chess players uh, they say that mentally and physically you do get exhausted are doing so many calculations in your head to like the world cup is just one particular tournament in this kind of a format with a knockout format and you go through the main event which where you call the world champion is actually now pragnananda by the by being within the top 3 in this fide world cup gets a route to the candidates so candidates tournament will happen next april there will be eight players uh, last year the world championship was between uh, china's uh, Ding Liren versus uh, Russia's Ian Nepomachi as Nepo as he's called in that he's there you have to eight players play round robin so each player play the other twice so after 14 games whoever stop goes plays the previous times winner so Vishwanath Anand was the world champion for a while five time world champion Magnus Carlsen has been then he's got issues with fide so he says he doesn't want to take part in it so uh, it's a completely different issue but Magnus Carlsen is the highest fide rated player another shout out i want to give to d gukesh he was one of the uh, other 17 year old talented indian player who was unfortunate to meet magnus in the quarter finals itself and he lost to him and magnus himself said that the game with gukesh he found it a little more challenging but who knows so as i have said we've got uh, in the quarter finals we had four players you had 
17 year old gukesh 18 year old pragnananda 20 year old arjun erigaisi and 28 year old vidit gujarati and we have some other players as well nihal sarin being another notable player in the top 50 and you add to that older chess grandmasters like vishyanand and hari krishna so we've got a formidable force and i think in the coming years we will see more and more wins we will see more and more tournament wins by these indians and uh, so this in itself is very positive similar to chandrayaan chandrayaan the mission was called pragyan coincidentally on the same day pragnananda was playing like a second uh, classic game uh, which he drew versus magnus i think both came at the same time hopefully this inspires like a whole new generation of chess players so i think uh, this again shows chess the game was invented in india shatranj and then it via persia via the middle east went to the west and now we are claiming it back so anyway i think this is another very positive thing again you love critics whatever they say that indian players probably are focusing 100% on chess when they are teenagers and not doing anything else and that's a criticism from some russian sources right now that gukesh and pragnananda don't even go to school or like they just while they enrolled in school they just give the exams and they playing 10 hours chess every day that's why they are so much better prepared but this is we we basically going to be the soviet union of the 70s and 80s take my word for this in the 2020s and the 2030s india will dominate chess like the soviet union did in 70s and 80s and these are just not hopeful words right we we've got a whole system we've got a lot of good coaches we've got a great infrastructure now for chess and the game is going more online so there's it's democratized you don't need to be in a physical location to learn from the best uh, coaches as well as to be able to play anyone who's a much higher rated player so absolutely this is like a very very positive moment while we might cover it next week so i think after this ratings so every month we have uh, ratings published so vishwanathan anand will drop to the number 2 from india gukesh in his live ratings is number 8 i think anand will drop to 9 and this is the first time since 1986 that anand is not india's number 1 and pragnananda i think is world number 23 and uh, he probably just went ahead of hari krishna but yeah we'll see the ratings on 1st of september and uh, so yeah very very positive news fantastic i love that we have uh, you know great news coming in from sports and science well on to some more geopolitics on thursday prime minister modi visited greece on the invitation of his greek counterpart kyriakos mitsotakis prime minister modi becomes the first indian prime minister to visit the country in 40 years he was honored with their highest civilian award the grand cross of the order of honor prime minister modi later posted on x or twitter as it was known earlier saying the two countries have decided to advance bilateral relations into a strategic partnership for the benefit of their people uh, the upgrade to strategic partnership means increased cooperation in trade and energy and also enhanced military cooperation as well so normally greece doesn't feature in mainstream on foreign relations and so on and so forth avishek could you tell us how greece is uh, strategically important for us Yeah so basically there are one or two ways in which we can look at this one is india would like to have some influence in the mediterranean region right because mainly you can th- say to counter china right which continues to have influence all over the globe so you know it makes sense for india also to keep expanding its diplomatic and strategic footprint across Uh, various uh, regions with you know partnerships and good relations with various countries the other thing which is like on a more concrete level that has been happening over the last uh, few years is that 
India has been trying to help Greece along with Armenia. And so there is a sort of, could say, unspoken or unwritten kind of alliances on both sides, right? With India, Greece and Armenia on one side coming together to counter Azerbaijan, Turkey and Pakistan. So as we know, right, Armenia and Azerbaijan have been in some sort of a conflict and uh, due to obvious reasons, Turkey and Pakistan have been big supporters of Azerbaijan. So India has been trying to help out Armenia. We've done some arms sales to them. And so there's this strategic element in which India is trying to sort of help out Greece and Armenia in this region as well. So yeah, I would say these are two big reasons Overall, I think Greece has been generally supportive of India in the United Nations on the question of Kashmir, etc. as well, right? It's a bit of a shame that it took 40 years for an Indian Prime Minister to go back to Greece. But it's not as sort of distant as, you know, we would normally perceive. There are a lot of power, great power games happening underneath. All right. Last week as well, the BRICS group held its uh, annual summit in South Africa. On Thursday, the leaders announced the admission of six new countries from next year onwards. The countries invited are Iran, Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, Egypt and the UAE. This expansion comes as the group seeks to expand its influence and reshape the global order. Nirav you know, we spoke about relations with Greece. Every week, every couple of weeks, we see a lot more strides on the whole geopolitical front, uh, right? So, how does how does the BRICS fit into the entire picture? Yeah, so, see, BRICS earlier uh, was just like a name uh, suggested by Jim O'Neill of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, where he said, these are the new growth areas in 2001. So, that is Brazil, Russia, India, China. And then these... Countries after the financial crisis in 2009, they made an informal coalition and nothing really was done. Then they caught South Africa added in 2010. So making it BRICS as a plural. So what has happened is by expansion of BRICS. In the current BRICS, uh, China is 70% of the GDP amongst these five countries. India is the second at like 13-14%. By addition of these countries, actually China's weightage comes down, but India's comes below 10%. So maybe like India becomes a distant second instead of like being like a strong second, if at all you would be bothered. But who are the countries you are joining in? Again, if you think India and China have like a lot of issues with each other, Iran, Saudi and UAE coming in. So first, what are all of these are oil exporting countries? One thing which needs to be seen in the geopolitical lens, USA used to import oil from the Middle East, but now due to shale, it is self-sufficient. So the biggest customer for these oil exporting countries is now China. India is their second, but like by far it is China. They become critical. Uh, a lot of countries are worried about their uh, reserves could be freezed or they want to diversify away. So we are seeing that while this initial talk right now, I think uh, rupee dirham trade for India and UAE to trade oil or India to purchase oil using rupees. Uh, similarly, there is the whole RMB trade between UAE and uh, China and Saudi and China and uh, Iran was already doing something in similar ways. So uh, also with like this high inflation and high commodity prices, there's some talks about some sanctions being softened on Iran in the future or near future. So this is these three. Then look at the other countries. So look at like Argentina, which is a serial defaulter, doesn't really matter in economics as such. Argentina and Brazil, uh, Argentina and uh, China already doing some uh, trade in RMB. 
Argentina serially defaulted on its dollar payment. It's kind of shut out of like US uh, USD funding markets. I think that comes in. I don't know how much it actually adds to BRICS, but this is showing China's leverage. Uh, another country, Ethiopia. Again, in Africa, this is like another country added after South Africa, but like probably Nigeria is the next biggest economy in Africa. Ethiopia is also, there have been a lot of Belt and Road Initiative projects. There's a railway line from the capital Addis Ababa to Djibouti, uh, which is funded by the BRI. There is some dam on uh, River Omo in Ethiopia. So here, actually, it is China showing its uh, strength. And this is BRICS has become a little more of a pro-China alliance. Like uh, it's maybe a little more, you can say, China against like the Western part. And lastly, the other country is Egypt. Egypt has been traditionally non-aligned country. That's another one. Egypt kind of is at like the junction, like the corner between Africa, Europe and Asia. So it's a critical country in terms of like a trade, historical trade route, etc. What BRICS actually gets done is very difficult to say. You have a BRICS development bank, which is again funded as per the a particular proportion of the GDP, etc. So basically it is funded mostly by China. And then the funding goes through to projects which it kind of decides. So that's what it is. But what this will do is you are slowly seeing people trying to de-risk from the US. So one is China needs to de-risk from the US massively because uh, what if what if US tomorrow decides to impose sanctions the way it did on Russia? I think it's in China's interest that way. Uh, similarly, for these other oil exporting countries, it's in their interest also because now their biggest customers are India and China. And in OPEC, it is a Middle East plus Russia which kind of, so Russia is not part of the OPEC, but it's kind of part of the OPEC plus where uh, they need to coordinate and have production cuts, etc. to kind of have a stronger lever on the oil prices. So it makes sense strategically for Iran, Saudi and UAE to join. Now between this, Saudi and UAE are more aligned as part of the GCC, but they are very anti-Iran as well. So again, I think in terms of what this actually achieves as an organization, uh, I'm not particularly sure. Each one might meet their narrow objective. So I think for India as well, uh, what happens is uh, UAE is one of the biggest trading partners. It is the third biggest trading partner for India, I think after US and China, actually. So India imports a lot from China still. And this grouping kind of maybe helps India. India already try, has an FTA with the UAE. But yes, there are critics of BRICS say that it does nothing. And there are people who are saying BRICS is going to change everything and break the dollar hegemony, etc. And the truth is probably somewhere in between. It is achieving small things. It depends on. And if you see from there was applications about from over 22 other countries who wanted to join as well. So let's see what real implication happens. That's it. Yeah, I think it's also a platform outside of the G7, right? So it provides some kind of a collective voice for these other countries, at least, well, philosophically speaking, right? All right, with that, uh, we come to the end of this Bharatwartha Weekly. It was great bringing you guys uh, all of this uh, brand new content. Don't forget to subscribe to us, follow us on all of your favorite platforms. You'll get this uh, on your social feeds. And if you really like the content, don't uh, forget to rate and review us. It'll 
help uh, more people discover uh, our podcast next week we have a conversation uh, with adit kapadia and mohal joshi both history nerds enthusiasts you've heard on the podcast before uh, we're talking about the 1965 war with pakistan various facets uh, of that so catch that uh, conversation uh, on bharat varta next week thank you for joining us uh, from abhishek neera and myself do stay safe take care and jai hind